You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Zach Weinberg, co-founder, president, and COO of Flatiron Health. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on theory and practice. So Alex, I got the chance to sit down with Zach Weinberg from Flatiron Health. That sounds awesome. I'm really excited to hear the conversation. Yeah, let's take a listen. The first question we asked Zach was how he got to where he is now. Freshman year of college, in one of the first classes I took at Penn, uh, I met this kid, Nat Turner, who uh, has been my business partner for, at this point, almost 14 years. You know, it was like the classic two kids in college who wanted to start a business that was relevant for all the problems that they had at that time, which for us was about ordering food. So, you know, <laughs> pretty impactful, critical problem set here. And uh, so we met freshman year. We were both kind of like entrepreneurial in, in nature. We were both interested in technology and in particular in, in the web. Uh, and remember, this is 2004. So we're kind of pre-iPhone and pre-mobile, even more broadly. So the idea of building software really always meant like desktop web software and we had this idea for this online food ordering company, and I won't go into, into too many details, but we, we started that company together while uh, essentially freshman and sophomore in college. Company did poorly, learned quite a bit about what it takes to, to do sales, to really understand a market, to understand margins and, and all the things that, you know, the minute you uh, have a budget and a burn, you know, reality kind of sets in. Anyway, it was a great experience, and through that experience, we got to meet this guy, Josh Koppelman, who was the founder of Half.com, and I think most people will know him as the founder of First Round Capital. Josh got us an internship at a first round investment out in the West Coast, and so Nat and I went for a summer to San Francisco. We did this internship in kind of the online advertising industry. It was a company at the time called Video Egg, and the exposure we had during the internship was really on the advertising side of things. So, you know, how do ads get from the end advertiser all the way to the consumer? So it's like an interesting thing to be exposed to at, you know, I think we're like 19 or 20, because most of the time you don't see these weird B2B backend type of problems. Um, but we did. Went back to school and, and from that original internship had a new idea. And, and this is the company that became Invite Media but the short story was this unique kind of summer experience uh, within a company and within an industry led us to a problem that we normally would never have even heard of, let alone thought about working on. So in 2007, we started Invite. We were a little more understanding of what that took at the time. We ended up raising money from first round and from some angel investors kind of surrounded ourselves with experts in the industry and online ads, one of whom is this guy, Brian O'Kelly, who people will know as the founding CTO of Right Media and then the CEO of AppNexus, which AT&T just bought. And Brian and then a, you know, a handful of others basically taught us the industry of online advertising and taught it to us from a technical perspective. So not just how to think about it in terms of customers, but actually how to think about it in terms of the underlying software that delivers the ads themselves. And 
you know, we were never an expert in any one thing, but, but we kind of learned quickly. So Invite Media became this company focused on helping large advertisers. So think, you know, Fortune 200, if you will, uh, and their agencies buy display ads online. So kind of the banners that, you know, follow you around the internet. But the hook to this was we were able to purchase those ads and specifically purchase the ad space across a variety of different vendors of supply, so different ad exchanges. So you could think, you know, like an E-Trade or a Scott Trade or that kind of system. That company, you know, it, it did well. I, I won't go into all the details, but we ended up selling it to Google in 2010 for about $100 million and then went to work at at Google um, from 2010 until 2012, which is really probably like the turning point for us in terms of our career, which was, you know, Invite Media, which was a, a perfectly fine outcome. That was our first job. That was our first experience really operating and hiring and doing all the things that comes along with, with actually running a company. But we had never actually seen it done well. We were winging it. You know, we were making this up as we go along. And when we got to Google, I was 23 or 24 at the time, and we were this 52-person company, and they were this 35,000-person company. And the first thing that really shocked me was that they were faster and more efficient and kind of run better than our little you know, rinky-dink startup. Uh, and it was really eye-opening to just see what a professional business actually looked like and, and all of the processes and cultural aspects they had that we just didn't have. And, and they were doing it at a scale that was, that was tremendous. How much of it was a difference in technology in terms of, you know, they just had developed this uh, suite of technologies that then could be leveraged in many ways? And how much of it was truly, um, you know, just business practices and operations and just being execution minded? I'd attribute the vast majority of it actually to the latter. I think the infrastructure that Google has for its employees to be efficient and effective, which is incredible, is actually an outcome of what is more on the input side, which is their culture, their kind of appreciation for hiring great talent, the ability to give technical people space and, and to be creative. And so all of the tools that they have now, which are what have allowed them to continue to scale, I think were because of the cultural setup, you know, from the beginning. And I think that was just really surprising to me to see the impact that, you know, focusing on hiring and focusing on operating culture, the capability that you could develop by doing that well without having to plan everything. And, you know, we were struggling with our first company and everything was really centrally planned and we didn't know how to do anything at scale because we always felt like we had to control it. And at Google, we kind of learned like, actually, you need to set up systems and processes, but you don't need to control all the details. So anyway, long-winded way of saying um, kind of grew up uh, operationally, if you will, at Google, but hated online advertising. <laughs> I hated everything about it. Did not want to do it <laughs> ever again. And that remains true to this day. So, you know, this is now 2011. We are kind of a year or two out of the Affordable Care Act. We are starting to see things like immunotherapies and other really interesting uh, advances uh, on the scientific side pop up in places like the New York Times. And Nat and I, we just felt like we wanted to do something that was more interesting and more impactful. And, and healthcare was one of the areas we were most interested in, but, but really knew nothing about it. And had this unique kind of time in our lives where we were financially independent 
and we had time. And so we did something a little different than I think most founders, which is we kind of picked an industry before we found a problem. And we got very, very interested in healthcare and very interested in oncology for reasons that are fairly obvious. But, you know, everyone has a family experience with the disease. It's something that you can really easily see yourself working on and, and feeling motivated to, to work in. And also it was changing. It was changing rapidly in terms of the business side and the, and the scientific side. So I'll take seven years and condense it very quickly. But, you know, we, we spent 18 months doing research so flying around the country, meeting cancer centers, meeting physicians, meeting people in pharma and payers, and just learning the business, learning the, the terminology, learning how to ask questions, getting smarter about the space, getting smarter about our questions. And then ultimately, that is what became Flatiron Health. And, and we had this one unique insight, I think, that turned into the core of the business, which was this growth and adoption of electronic health records. And that there was more valuable data in these EHRs than, than people thought. It was just complicated to aggregate and complicated to curate and kind of operationally complex to just do all of this and build a business around it. And that was the kind of problem we were interested in, which was something we thought we would be good at, which is kind of taking our technical expertise and our operational expertise, but applying it to a problem that most people thought didn't exist. One of the things that you did that I think a lot of people were afraid of was actually doing the hard and very human work of structuring data in electronic medical record. Maybe say a little bit more about how you got there and, and how you made it successful. So I'll, I'll give you the, I guess, the backstory, which is we were out talking to physicians and we were talking to industry experts, and we kept hearing this somewhat common set of phrases that we, we couldn't figure out exactly what they meant, but people would say essentially, I put a lot of stuff into the electronic health record but I can't get it out. And I remember hearing that phrase like 10 or 15 times. And, you know, my product sense is, all right, what, what does stuff mean? And what does get it out mean? And we really, really pushed on figuring out those details. And so stuff, as far as we understood it, meant essentially the clinical record of the patient, which is all of the things that the physician sees and does in their experience seeing that, that patient in their office, as well as all the things that happen to that patient throughout their course of care. So from, from treatment to radiology to any sort of blood work, wh wh whatever the experience was for that patient, that stuff, that data was, was going into the EHR. And then the get it out part, when you really dug into it, meant I want to ask questions about populations. I want to know all of my triple negative breast cancer cases, and I want to understand what's happening to them as opposed to one individual patient. The reason this was hard, and this, this is where I think the technical part, I guess, came into play, was because we found much of this data was stored in unstructured documents. So, you know, PDFs and Word docs and uh, images even, uh, so images of text. Now, it wasn't handwriting anymore, and that was actually a really big insight for us, because we assumed a lot of this was handwritten. And actually, it turns out, you know, with the High Tech Act, more and more documentation was being done with a computer. But it was complicated to figure out how to get that data out at scale. And, and anyone that had tried it before using natural language processing and like a pure automated approach had failed because the quality of the NLP or machine learning algorithms would just couldn't give you the accuracy level that we felt like or people thought that you needed. So our insight, if you will, was that you could use people and technology to do this well. Uh, that was our, you know, aha moment. 
I had seen this done at Google in other contexts, especially in creation of training data, where there were tons of, of humans labeling information. And we just made this assumption with a little bit of napkin math that you could do this with charts, with, with patient charts. You know, it wasn't more complicated than counting the number of patients we thought you'd have to go through and the amount of time you'd have to spend in that chart and then how much money you'd have to pay somebody per hour to do it and, you know, a calculator. And, and you got to numbers from a cost perspective that felt reasonable. And that was the insight. And, you know, from there, obviously, that's what became Flatiron's core unique selling point, if you will, was our ability to curate and use data trapped in these unstructured documents and, and to do it at scale. So how much of this opportunity was a moment in time? Could you start Flatiron today and be as successful? And also, you know, would the technology have advanced where maybe the human side of the curation wouldn't be as important? Maybe the way I looked at it is you couldn't have done it earlier than we did, meaning there wasn't enough adoption of electronic health records at scale to be able to meaningfully aggregate data because there was still too much paper in the healthcare system. And so I think had we tried to start this in 2008 instead of 2012, we would have run into hurdles that were insurmountable, just not having enough electronic data to work with. So in that sense, we were a little early, but the timing, which I think is just frankly luck, was great. I think the same is kind of true now in the sense that it's doable now as well. In fact, actually, we do see other companies popping up that are, are taking Flatiron's model either to a different disease or maybe in a different country or with a slightly different twist and, and still doing this hybrid approach of people in tech. And so I think now is, it's still a very, very viable business model or execution model, which then kind of, I guess, speaks to when do you not need humans, right? Like how long do you still have to have the human in the loop? Yeah. And the short answer, in my belief, is actually a very, very long time. The data is messy, it's human language, and people say things in very different ways and use complicated terminology. The variety there is tremendous. And the use case for this data is high impact, high risk. So the margin for error, if you will, the ability to say something is true and then have it not be true is very limited in healthcare, in our use case at least. And so because of that quality bar being very, very high, my belief is the humans will need to be here for a significant amount of time when you're dealing with text data. I would give you a very different answer as it relates to imaging data or even genomic data, but for text-based data, for chart data, I think a human in the loop is going to be required for at a minimum the next decade, and then we'll see where it goes. Maybe say a little bit more about the business model of Flatiron. You know, you acquired an EMR company. Did you make all your money selling EMRs to hospitals? What I can tell you is owning an EHR is like the world's worst business from a uh, financial standpoint. <laughs> so no, no, we did not make any money. In fact, we lose pretty good amount of money every year just owning and operating the electronic health record. You know, when you get outside of the giant hospital systems, which are basically a two, it's a duopoly with Epic and Cerner. And those companies are very profitable and make tons of money because the market is giant, the complexity is, is tremendous, and there's really only two players that can actually support the needs of the customer. You get away from that market, you get into specialty, which obviously oncology is, everything just gets smaller. So number of customers, ability to pay, price point, things like that. But the complexity still remains fairly complicated. And so 
our belief was always that you had to have a kind of a two-sided company. You needed to, you know, build great electronic health record software and deliver high quality experiences, be it software or analytics to cancer centers and cancer practices all across the country, which we do. But the only way to financially support the business would be to use the data in a de-identified way across the population. And, and that meant biotech and biopharma as the primary customer for the data sets. So that's Flatiron's business. We are two-sided. We have cancer centers and the software we build for, for them on one side. And then we have biotech and biopharma and data we provide to them on the other. And the margin in the business, although Flatiron still remains unprofitable, you know, high growth, high burn kind of company, the margin is in the, the data business. And so what does the data product look like to the life sciences industry? Yeah, the simplest way to frame it is we can measure how patients are being treated and seen in the real world, so not in the context of a clinical trial. And we can see what is going on at a much more granular level than you would be able to find in billing data or in claims data or in kind of alternative methods of measuring because there's tremendous detail in the electronic health record that you just wouldn't see in other data sources. A simple example here would just be understanding a patient's biomarker status. So knowing not just that they received a, a, a test, but actually understanding the results of the test, the cutoff threshold, the staining percentages, things like that. And providing those data sets at population levels, so not no, any one individual patient, obviously, but understanding triple negative breast cancer cases, understanding EGFR positive lung cancer cases, kind of whatever the cohort of interest is, how those patients are diagnosed, how they're treated, and then ultimately the outcomes in the real world. So looking at things like survival, disease progression, tumor response, and, and the like. And there are multiple use cases for understanding what's going on in the real world. Everything from Frankly, just understanding how patients are treated and, and the treatment patterns so that if I'm planning a new therapy or a new therapy launch, how do I think about planning? What does the market even look like? All the way through really the use cases I think we are most excited about, which have to do with generating real evidence that can affect decisions related to payment and, and treatment and then ultimately regulatory use cases. So think approval and, and, and the like. And a lot of this comes down to having to have extremely high quality of data, rigor of, of audit, so the ability to trace all this data back to a source document and to show, show our work, and then to have the statistical methods to be able to use this and apply the data in, in the right way, kind of like fit for purpose, if you will. That's the business, and there's you know, layers of complexity, but ultimately it is in understanding you know, real-world patterns and, and outcomes. You know, this idea of building a two-sided market or two-sided network, it kind of looks a lot like the ad tech business. Do you feel like your time in ad tech kind of prepared you for building Flatiron? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think the idea of Flatiron as a software company, but as an enterprise software company was always really important, we thought, to our ability to execute. You know, Nat and I are not the world's best engineers. We are definitely not oncologists. We are not statisticians. We're kind of like mediocre at all of those things, let's say. But what we do have is a fundamental appreciation for what software can do. And then the ability to do the business side around it, and in particular, the enterprise sales part of this, which is going out in the field, talking to customers, figuring out what the right story is, what the right value prop looks like, and, 
executing not just technically, but also from a sales perspective, because for our business, you needed to have enough scale, especially on the cancer center side for this to be remotely interesting. And so we had to build scale of data. And then we also had to build scale of research customer or pharma customer, if you will. You know, as boring of an industry as ad tech is, and it is really, really boring, it does <laughs> prepare you for technical complexity and enterprise sales because that is ad tech. So I think having had that experience allowed us to execute in healthcare in a way that I think if we were like first-time founders, I just don't think it would have worked. I, just, I don't think we would have been able to maneuver our way in, in a business like this uh, maybe as efficiently as we did without having you know tried and failed previously. But also, I guess even more specifically, I think not a lot of people in healthcare appreciate this idea of creating a two-sided market. They think of just, I sell an EMR, not I sell an EMR and then I sell data to another person. Is it fair to say you learned that in the ad tech world? I think in ad tech, you saw the two-sided play just happening over and over and over again. I mean, even you could even consider Google just in its core search business in some senses two-sided, right? Like the consumer side drives the opportunity, but the actual business is on the advertising side. So I think it was somewhat intuitive for us because those were the kind of businesses at least we were used to seeing. A lot of what the feedback we got from people when we were first starting was not that the idea was particularly bad. We just got a lot of skepticism around how do you do that because you're selling and executing technically across two totally different customer bases who have different personalities and people and needs and all of that. And you kind of have to learn to be an expert in both. And so that I think there was a lot of skepticism of, of can that be done? And Nat and I had this nice little advantage, which is that there were two of us. So we could kind of divide and conquer a little bit here. And actually, in a sense, that's actually how we ran and run Flatiron today, which is this kind of divide and conquer play where Nat owned and drove our cancer center business and the electronic health record business. And then I did the reverse on the biotech and biopharma side. By having two of us rather than one of us, I think it allowed us to kind of execute at high quality in, in two totally different markets. I'm not convinced a solo founder could have done that. It, it's just too hard to really become an expert on both sides. I think many people would say that we're still in kind of the first or second inning of the impact of technology and data on medicine. What do you think the biggest opportunities are now? So I was just asked this question by my mom. So let me, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a few things. Maybe one of these will be surprising, or at least I'll start with it, which is because it's not an area that I know well, but biotech and in particular gene therapy, you know, look, I'm, I'm not a scientist and, and I'm not an oncologist, but I can spot real technical progress when I see it. And this kind of coming wave of gene therapy and what we're able to do in terms of developing therapies that we just could not have done 10 years ago seems to me like a giant technical shift and therefore the quality of the stuff in the pipeline, if you will, I think is just going to blow people away in terms of, of what science and biology are capable of doing in, in the next 20 years. I'm excited by all of it. I couldn't pick winners. I wouldn't be able to do the diligence, but I could tell you that it feels different this time. It feels like our ability to develop therapies that are extremely complicated from a manufacturing standpoint 
is just different than it once was. And so that to me is really exciting. And there are probably scientists that you'll interview who could actually explain the details there better than I can. But if I were a betting person, and, and I am, I would be putting a lot of money in, in that area. Maybe second to that is in, I'll be very specific, in radiology. I think radiology feels like the obvious place in healthcare where machine learning, and in particular, computer vision, will have a tremendous impact because in the grand scheme of things, a computer is going to be better at reading a picture than a human is over time. It's still tremendously complicated to execute on. It requires tons of data, super high quality labels, the right ML team, the right radiology team, and also the right business model. But it's a place where logically it, it seems like technology can really play and can actually be better than the status quo. Whether that's computer assisted or computer replacing, my answer is it's probably a little bit of both, but that feels kind of ripe for change. And then maybe the last area, although this is more generic, is just this shift to value-based care, which you know, I heard this in 2012 and the reality was it wasn't exactly real at the time. I feel like it's a lot more real today than it once was, is creating opportunities for companies to improve outcomes, but actually have an associated business model. I just don't think that was true previously at scale. You know, there were plenty of really interesting companies that while I think the intervention, if you will, that they were developing seemed great, there was just no way to get it paid for. And that seems to be changing, be it, you know, alternative relationships between payer and provider, be it Medicare Advantage, even just Medicare itself experimenting in CMMI. There are a lot of pockets in the healthcare system today that seem to have more aligned incentives than there used to be. Especially on the last one, when you think about value-based care, how much of what's needed is technologies or technical, and how much of it is just operational and actually getting the incentive structures right? You know, my impression of healthcare broadly is it's always both. I think the teams that seem to do well and have executed at high quality, there's always some nice balance between fundamental understanding of healthcare and healthcare, either services or delivery, whatever it may be that's relevant for their market. So, you know, at Flatiron, for example, we have a dozen oncologists on staff. We have multiple dozen oncology nurses. We have folks with real healthcare experience. And then we also have the technical side. I think the same is true in other markets, in value-based care, you're going to need people who have care delivery experience. You're going to need high-quality physicians. And then you're probably going to need the technical and data people to do this efficiently. You can't just throw a bunch of engineers at a problem and expect it to work in the same way you can't just throw a bunch of physicians at a problem and expect it to work. You, you kind of need them working hand-in-hand. Hand. So you know, the DNA of, of some of these companies that I think are going to do well, you can always see it. There's a, a really nice balance of clinical or scientific with technical, and there's an appreciation for both sides. So actually along those lines, when you think about the companies that are actually going to bring technology into medicine, many are, would argue that it's the big tech companies that are going to change healthcare just like they've changed every other industry. And then others say, no, no, the domain and the incentive structures are so complex. You know, it's the insurance companies and medical systems that know the space. They'll figure out how to bring software engineers in. And others who kind of say it'll be a new generation of companies that's fundamentally built to do both. I'm guessing you think it's the latter? 
I think it's the latter in the short run, in the sense that I don't think the giant tech companies have the appetite for like just the hand-to-hand combat that goes on in doing sales, frankly, in, in the healthcare system. I think there's a lot of interest on their part, but I'm not convinced that they're going to be the people who do the zero to one, you know, the, I have an idea, let me actually build this and get it done. With that said, you know, in the mid to long run, these are companies that have tremendous resources and scale of technical talent and a balance sheet. And so it wouldn't shock me if what happens in the long run is the big guys start to roll up some of the smaller successful players. And you do see consolidation in in some of the larger companies over time. I'm just not convinced it will start there. And then there'll be exceptions to this rule. I think, you know, with everything, there's always some sub market in healthcare that, you know, just goes against the grain. And obviously Amazon is trying really interesting things in pharmacy and we'll see if that works. Google, it's funny because I'm on the Google podcast, but uh, no, I don't, I don't think Google can pull this off, but I do think Google can buy and scale. And they're tremendously good at that. And then we'll see if Microsoft has real interest in healthcare beyond, you know, extending the the Windows and Office suite. Maybe, maybe not. The one that always stands out to me, although I don't, you know, you don't talk about them a lot, or at least they're not in the public domain as much, is Optum. And Optum has some real technology at the core. It has definitely has real healthcare people. They are an M&A machine. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to be talked about in the public press, I guess. And they're a fascinating player because they do have some of the DNA of both sides. So they're someone I would watch closely to emerge as kind of a new power. Not really new, but maybe new to some people. You know, another question for you, an area that you've thought about deeply is clinical trials. And, you know, many would say that this is kind of the bottleneck in all innovation in healthcare. Is just the time and cost that it takes to actually show that a drug works. Where do you think that field's going? It's probably the one I'm actually most bearish on, to be honest. The way at least I think about it is, what's the risk that the sponsor, be it a new drug or a new device or whatever the intervention is, what's the risk appetite of that player? Clinical trials in particular, because typically the outcome of that study is a data set that's going in front of a regulator And the decision that that regulator is going to make will make or break that company or drug or device. And therefore, the risk reward is is a really interesting problem. Um, These are ultra high risk studies. I'm just not convinced that sponsors are willing to take on tons of risk in terms of how things are done in any sort of short term time period. Yes, there'll be incremental operational improvements and hopefully like we get rid of paper and and even little things like around data quality and and data monitoring, but drastic change. I'm not convinced there's appetite for it on the sponsor side. Maybe the one exception here is, you know, with more devices and, and wearables and things that people can have at home or outside of the doctor's office, maybe there's opportunity in certain disease areas to do these studies more efficiently and to do them at scale. But especially in a place like oncology as an example, where most of these are like infused therapies, especially when you get into gene therapy, I think the system is the system for the foreseeable future. I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm overly negative because I'm, I'm jaded now, but uh, it'd not be the area I, I'd pick as the place ripe for innovation. All right, excellent. Anything else I should ask you about today? I'll give you one thought. I don't know if this is interesting, but 
One thing that has really shocked me in the last few years, Nat and I have done angel investing since we sold the first business in 2010. And then we took a break, obviously, as we were growing Flatiron. And now we've done a little bit more recently. I think the quality of the founder and the companies that we are seeing today relative to what we saw in 2012 is materially better. I don't know if that means the hit rates are going to be higher or the successes will be more frequent, but people are just smarter and better at what they're doing than I think they were back even just like five or six years ago. Somebody probably knows why that is. I'm, I'm not that person, but I'm pretty optimistic about the quality of company that we're going to see over the next decade appear. And that's, that's not just in healthcare. I think that's in software broadly. Now that you are yourself more successful, is it possible you're just getting introduced to better people? Yeah. That, you know, it's funny. That's what I thought too for, for a bit. There's probably a little bit of that. I also just think the tools to start a company are better. So all the friction that you had to deal with, even like five, six years ago, everything from like your technical infrastructure to your payroll systems, to legal, to fundraising, a lot of these friction points have been chipped at, whether it's by having standard legal documents to obviously AWS, to companies like Gusto and JustWorks and folks that deal with all the, the HR complexity. It's never been easier to start a company, even though people may not think that. It really is easier, especially in the States. So hopefully that's part of it. And how much of it, when you say that the founders are material better, is it that they're better operators, better strategists, better technologists, you know, kind of thinking more about the domain they're going into? I'm finding technical people who are very customer product and market oriented at a pace that I didn't see it before. Meaning, you know, if I were to go back even just five, six years ago, you tended to see these teams where there was like one business person and then an engineering leader. And that was like the prototypical makeup, but it was always two people. And now you're seeing these founders who have very strong technical backgrounds, whether it's in software engineering or in something else technical, but also have the product and customer instincts and understanding that typically you would have needed two folks for. And so now these, you see founding teams that are very capable of doing both the business side and the technical side. And these founders just seem to be more well-rounded. I don't know, maybe they're getting started earlier or there's more to read or it's easier to learn than it once was, but the quality of the individual I'm always impressed by. It makes me very happy we started our company seven years ago and not today, because I feel like we would not be materially better than the folks that are coming out today. I've always been more impressed with the people now than maybe we were, you know, just like a decade ago. How do you see New York fitting in the technology ecosystem? Obviously, you know, Bay Area is still the epicenter, but it does seem like there are a lot of great companies coming out of New York, especially in health tech between, you know, Flatiron, Oscar, Clover, Verana. It does seem like there's a little bit of a nexus there. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. I think any, any geography, it just takes, you know, a decade or two you need one or two breakout companies. You need the people from those companies to then leave and start their own. And then the talent pool just grows. So yeah, I think New York is finally seeing that. I mean, we're going to have Datadog. We're going to have Peloton. We had Flatiron. We have Oscar. We have Compass. You know, it's not just in healthcare. It's, it's all across. And then honestly, I think San Francisco, as much as it has been the epicenter, and it still remains this today, they're just not doing themselves any favors with the housing issues. And I know it sounds ridiculous that that's going to change things, but it's a tough spot to be if you don't have money. And 
that is going to have real repercussions for the quality of the talent because people are just, they're not going to be able to live there. And I think you're going to see, because of those issues, places like LA, places like New York, Boston, Chicago, even, you're just going to see more successes in other places. San Francisco and, and, and the Valley will always be huge, but I do think we're going to see the growth of others maybe faster than we once did because of some of the cost of living challenges in the Bay Area. Fantastic. Thank you so much for making the time to chat today. It was just great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Zach Weinberg is co-founder, president, and COO of Flatiron Health. It's really cool that you got to have that conversation. Yeah, it was really wonderful to hear his outlook. So can we hammer and nail it up? For our listeners, you and I both attend this meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where everyone either brings an idea that they want to see solved, or they have a technology or mathematical tool that they can explain. So hammer and nail. Do you have a cool idea you want to chat about? I do. There's been something that's been on my mind. I think it's worth sharing. It's maybe not so commonly known outside of machine learning, but it's really important for kind of practical applications of machine learning, and it's called semi-supervised learning. Okay, do tell. So it's semi, meaning it's like kind of supervised. And I think we know what supervised learning is, which is you know, where you've got maybe a bunch of images and like a bunch of human labels, like this image has a cat, this image has a dog. And we know what unsupervised learning is, which is where we don't have any teaching signals, but we're just trying to find structure in the data. So this would be stuff like clustering or anomaly detection or you know, dimensionality reduction like PCA. But there's this thing in the middle, which is semi-supervised learning, which is like You've got some examples with labels, but you've got a whole bunch that you don't, right? Okay. Which is almost always the case, right? Yep. So the internet is full of images, and almost none of them have labels from people that says what's in those images. Okay, so how, how does it work? Like, what's the kind of training regime? Right, so the idea is to take advantage of labels when you have them, but take advantage of the fact that images don't look like random static, right? So there still is a bunch of structure in images or in data, whatever it is that you're working with, that tells you, hey, this thing is actually a regular looking example of data, right? It's not anomalous. And maybe you can learn some signal from that, right? Walk me through it. So, okay, let's say I want to try train a classifier to recognize cats in images. And I have... Well, let's maybe make it concrete in, in medicine, right? So okay. maybe you want to recognize in an echocardiogram, congestive heart failure or something like that. Okay. So I have a whole bunch of echoes most of which do not say heart failure or not heart failure. I don't know. And then I have, let's call it 10% of my data is actually labeled as either heart failure or not heart failure. Right. So how do I use the other 90%? Right. So let's start with using the first 10% as effectively as possible. So I think you'd agree that if I took an image of a heart and I rotated it by two degrees, that it's still kind of the same thing. Sure. Right. It's still the same heart. It still has heart failure. And so we might say that, you know, that image is invariant to rotations. Um, although, you know, when you position your kind of wand to take an echo, that puts the heart in a particular position. But there can be small variances that you kind of want to be robust to. So what you can do is take your 10% and blow it up by 10, 100x by just making little random rotations and crops and leaving the labels the same. That's the important part, is you're slightly tweaking the image in ways that you think shouldn't affect the label, or ways in which you know it shouldn't affect the label. And then you just kind of keep doing the normal thing. So it's as if your data set had expanded by a whole, whole bunch, right? And this is something that you almost kind of got to do in order to get state-of-the-art performance or just kind of get practical you know, sure. levels of performance today in supervised learning. So that's making better use of the yep. 10% of exactly. the data. But now what about this 90% under the semi-supervised? Right, so there's a lot of different approaches for doing this, but... The general idea is this. No matter what the label of that 
image would have been for one that you don't have a label. If you had tweaked that image a little bit, it shouldn't have changed that imaginary label. Oh, okay. So going back to the example, let's say I take a heart mm -hmm. that's labeled and mm -hmm. I rotate it by two degrees. Right. I should be confident that, that doesn't change the label. Right. Uh, so the same thing here, whatever the missing variable is, right. missing label is, if I do the same perturbation, I should keep the label invariant. Exactly. And there's a bunch of different ways of trying to ask a neural network or any kind of a model to have that behavior to kind of be smooth or at least kind of flat with respect to changes in the image. But a lot of the techniques kind of boil down to that approach, which is, you know, small changes in naturalistic things. So for images, that would be rotations. For audio, that might be like adding a little white noise or background noise or something like that. It's a little bit harder for molecules, but I think that we'll eventually get there. And for medical records or for text, that might mean replacing words with like synonyms, sure. things like that. So perturbations that shouldn't change the kind of the essence of the thing that you're looking at, that should both not change an actual real label, yep. but it shouldn't affect an imagined label either, right? So we kind of okay. want the model to be smooth around those examples that we see that are real. So let's say I do that on my unlabeled mm -hmm. data. How does that actually help me better predict the labels in my labeled data? That's an interesting meta topic, which is there's a big gap in deep learning between theory and practice. People are working extremely hard on coming up with better theoretical understandings of why neural networks behave the way that they do when you train them. And people are learning a lot empirically about what happens when you just kind of poke and prod them and do different things. Right. Why exactly semi-supervised learning helps? Why pre-training you know, used to help and why data augmentation helps now so much? There's a lot of ideas for why that might be, but I wouldn't say that there's like a definitive answer. I think it generally comes down to trying to get your neural network to learn a, a smooth representation of the data distribution that you're looking sure. at. So neural networks have this kind of tendency to, outside of data that they've seen, act really wonky. And so just by showing them some examples and saying, hey, don't act wonky around these data points, like these are perfectly fine and legitimate, just be cool, like right. be chill around these data points, that actually seems to help quite a bit. So it helps kind of extrapolate a little bit out of the data distribution, and it helps kind of interpolate, you know, in holes in your data distribution when you haven't seen specific examples that look like something that might not be labeled. But even operationally, how does it work? Because I mean, you know, if I'm training on labeled mm -hmm. data, I have, you know, various optimization algorithms mm -hmm. that help me kind of predict. Where in that training regime am I using the unlabeled data? So you usually add it to another part of your loss function. Right. So for data okay. augmentation, you change nothing because right. you're treating those examples as if they're perfectly regular labeled examples. Right. So no modification needed except for your data set, which is what makes it super appealing, super easy to get started with. But for using unlabeled examples, you kind of have to add another piece to right. your loss function. And that's kind of where the research begins, which is we don't really know the exact best way of adding an extra term to your loss function to say, hey, your you know, success in this particular example is a function of both a labeled example, but also this thing that's unlabeled, right? And you might oh, measure how smooth it is around that example. You can do that a bunch of different ways, but you kind of add both terms together. I get it. And so there's, let's say, something kind of similar to regularization that you're doing in terms yeah, of Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. This is kind of a, you know, you're using actual data as a regularizer. Right. And so in the same way that a lot of times what you want to do is choose the classifier. So let's say you're doing lasso or something mm -hmm. like that. You have some way where you're kind of prioritizing those estimators that are smaller in that's norm. Right. Yep. There's something similar where you're kind of looking at the un unlabeled data and, and basically building a classifier that is somehow simpler on, on those data sets. Exactly. Yeah. You're trying to select for models that are, quote, well-behaved around data that you think is reasonable to be well-behaved around. Sure. That's kind of the gist. 
how much of a difference does it make in practice? So again, you know, let's say that I, going back to the example of echoes and heart failure, if I just train on my labeled data or if I have 10 times more unlabeled data, you know, is this the kind of thing that makes a big difference in the performance of my classifier or is it just like a little bit of an optimization? So data augmentation, right? So yeah. not semi-supervised learning, but data augmentation, my impression is that this is just table stakes. Sure. You just do it, right? right. It's usually a one-liner when you're writing code to implement these things. For semi-supervised learning, there seems to be some regimes where it helps a whole ton. We're kind of still exploring this. There's really interesting work out of Google on algorithms called mix-up and mix-match, and these seem to be working pretty well, like surprisingly yeah. well to kind of extract more signal from smaller data sets. Okay. And I mean, the reason why I bring it up at all is like that's the regime that we're almost always in sure. when we're doing new things. This topic of semi-supervised learning is fascinating. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't like the original Deep Belief Net paper from Hinton and colleagues, didn't they actually use a semi-supervised regime? They did. And that was, in fact, the current era of deep learning. It was kind of born when Jeff Hinton and his students won ImageNet, yeah. uh, when they kind of got convolutional neural networks to work at scale. They did this thing called pre-training. And the idea was to kind of build up a neural network with no labels and kind of pre-train this network layer by layer. And that's, I think, how people thought you had to train these neural networks for quite some time. It became clear as perhaps as compute became cheaper, perhaps as people just tried more stuff, that pre-training actually doesn't really help that much. And so you might get the impression kind of reading through the literature from, you know, the early 2000s onwards that like this is a thing you've got to do. But somewhere along the way, we just kind of stopped doing it uh, just because we had enough data, we had enough compute, and it. it just didn't help. Understood. Alex, this is really interesting. Thanks so much for bringing it up. Anthony, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. And thanks even more for bringing us the interview. It was really awesome. Of course. I think that wraps up this episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Alex Wolchko. And I'm Anthony Filipakis. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com.